0: Good morning. My name is Tricia and today's second Bible reading is taken from Luke chapter 7 verse 18 to 35. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask. Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in the fine clothes, No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proof right by all her children. This is God's word.
1: Well, good morning, friends. I do hope uh, you've been finding our studies in the Gospel of Luke nourishing for your soul. It's always really wonderful to come back to the Gospels and to reflect on the person of Jesus Christ, to engage with him on the pages of Scripture. And we come with fresh eyes each time when we come back to Scripture. So uh, let's come again to this passage and let's ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, as we consider the Lord Jesus, as we engage with him on the pages of Scripture, we pray that we will indeed meet him, the one who is the one true saviour, the king of all. And we pray, Lord, that you'll work by your spirit in us, that we might respond appropriately. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'd like to begin today with a thought. And I wonder whether this is a thought that has come across your minds at all. And this is the thought. I wonder whether you've ever thought about whether Jesus meets your expectations of who the Saviour is meant to be. Of who the King is meant to be. Of who the ruler of the world is meant to be. Does Jesus meet your expectations? Now, of course, if you're new to Christianity and you're only being introduced to Jesus, maybe that's worth reflecting. Does he meet your expectations of what the Lord of the world is meant to be like? Or if you have been a disciple of Jesus for a long time, you've travelled with Jesus, you've been to the mountaintop experiences and the valleys of life, and, and you've walked with Jesus, but... Is Jesus the one you expected him to be? Is he the ruler, the friend? We sing of that hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus. Is he the friend in your life? Is he the one you expect him to be? Or do you reflect and you wonder as you consider the world, could Jesus in fact do more? I in fact expected more of my Lord. I expected more of my Saviour. As I consider the world, could could Jesus, in fact, do more now to make the world a better place? Because after all, he's the king, he's the Lord, isn't he? I mean, if you think about it, as we consider the world, as we read the newspapers, as we listen to the radio, as we see what happens in our world every single day, crime and violence and corruption and oppression and revenge and injustice. And not only that, what is so simple, so basic, but yet, even the family unit, it's been deconstructed. There is now so much confusion with even identity and gender. We have no idea what it means to be a man or a woman. And so you look at the world and the mess that we're in, and we're thinking, we've got a Lord. We've got a king. Could he do more? Does He meet your expectations of him? Or even within the church, as we consider the global church, the churches around the world, could Jesus be doing more within the church, not just outside the church, but within the church? I mean, if you have been up to date with the news, just about 10 days ago last week, do you hear about what happened in the Church of England in the UK? What was passed as a motion in their synod, which is like their parliament equivalent? When the Church of England, about 10 days ago, they passed a motion that now allows for the church to bless same sex unions. Now, when you read off that news, what are your thoughts? I'm thinking this is within the church now. What God calls sin, the church now calls holy. What God does not permit, the church now celebrates. And not only that, daring enough to ask for God's blessings. What a travesty! And you look at not just the world, but within the the ruler of the universe. And so that's a thought. I wonder whether that's entered your mind at all. Because that's exactly what we see in this passage. As we consider John the Baptist and what was going through his mind as he was looking around the world at his time. As he was considering what was taking place amongst the people. He was thinking, Jesus, you're, you're not really lining up with what I expected you to be. Who I expected you to be. And so we come into the mind of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, if you, if you don't remember who he was, he was the, the great supporter of the Lord Jesus. The one who points out, there you see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew exactly who Jesus was. But now something was changing in him. Perhaps doubt, perhaps his situation was causing him to question. He's been in prison at this point because of what he said about Herod, and his head will soon be on a platter soon. And so he's doubting. He's doubting, Jesus, you're you're not really matching up to the one I expected you to be. You're not really doing what I hope you will be doing. He started to doubt. Doubt was creeping in. And perhaps just a little digression at this point. If John the Baptist baptized Jesus and he was doubting, I suspect we too find ourselves in that situation where we doubt. Are we really certain? Our expectations aren't really matching up with the reality, and we doubt, and we doubt even Jesus. What are you doing, Lord? But what was happening here with John? Well, what was happening was that he expected more of Jesus. You are the king, you are the saviour, but, but we want to see more. And we learn from what John expected from how he preached. Do you remember the sermon John gave when people came out to the desert? Well, have a look at it. Look at how he preached. In chapter 3 of Luke, verse 7, he said, You brood of vipers, who want you to flee from the coming wrath? He called out to the people who came out to listen to him. You bunch of venomous snakes. It's an interesting way to begin a sermon. I'm not, I'm not game enough to try it here. You, know, you brood of vipers, no, not at all. But that was John's sermon. That was what he expected. That was his assessment of the people. You bunch of venomous snakes. And then what John also expected in his preaching, in verse 9 of chapter 3, he said, The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, what was John expecting? He was expecting Jesus, as he was coming into this world and as he was going about his ministry, he was expecting Jesus to swing the axe. And as you're swinging the axe, you're not meant to stop. You're meant to chop down the tree. The tree's meant to be gone. There was meant to be judgment. The coming of Jesus for John meant judgment day. But instead, what was John hearing? He was hearing all these good news about what Jesus was doing. So compassionate, healing the leper, raising the dead, even preaching good news, all this nice stuff. But he's thinking, where's the axe swinging Jesus? Come on, look at these people, the brood of vipers. Where is the judgment? And so he's looking at this generation. This is a wicked bunch of people. Jesus, you should see this. You need to do something. And so that's why what he did in this passage, he sent two of his disciples to Jesus, And to ask Jesus, look at verse 20, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? He's questioning, you're not really meeting my expectations of the Messiah. I want to see a bit of the fury of God. And I do wonder whether if we're honest, sure, we're nice people, we're kind, we're friendly, but if we're honest, whether we feel a bit like John the Baptist sometimes, God, a bit of judgment now upon the world will do the world some good. Send down some fire. Jesus, do some judging. In fact, even the disciples of Jesus, James and John, later in Luke, when they went to a Samaritan village and they were not welcomed, remember in their zealousness what they said to Jesus. They said in Luke 9, They said, Lord, do you want us to call call fire down from heaven to destroy them? I mean, even the disciples of Jesus, they were saying to Jesus, well, let us torch this place. Rain fire down from heaven. And I wonder whether sometimes we feel that way. You know, as we look at perhaps the world, the churches, the lives of people who are just filthy and wretched sinners, Sometimes I suspect we might feel that way. Not say that it's right, you see, because those two disciples were rebuked by Jesus. But sometimes I wonder whether there's a bit of John the Baptist in us. We just want vengeance. We want fury. We want judgment. I mean, sometimes I feel that way. Not saying that it's right, but I acknowledge it. I feel that way. In fact, not just, just the other week, in fact. I don't normally watch the Grammys, the music awards, and I don't really recommend it anyway. But this past week I read an article from the Gospel Coalition, and if you haven't heard, one of the winning performances was a song called Unholy. And everything about the performance was absolutely unholy. One of the singers dressed up as Satan, and the performance was somewhat a satanic ritual. Of course, it was just a performance. They're in costumes. It's not for real. But it does reflect something of what our society applauds. It reflects something of the heart of society that we would think that is good enough to give an award to. I mean, I was horrified. I was horrified. I was, uh, sent that link to Yvonne. I was thinking, I'm a bit like John the Baptist here. Where's some fire? Where's some fury of God? What is portrayed as unholy, the world applauds. Maybe there is sometimes a bit of John the Baptist in us. And so, Jesus, what are you doing? You're not really matching up to my expectations. And that's why John the Baptist asked, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Swing the axe already, Jesus. But how did Jesus respond? Well, I reckon what we see here is the gentleness and patience of Jesus. Because rightly, how could Jesus have responded? He could have sent the two guys back and said, Who do you think you are? I'm the saviour of the world. Who do you think you are to question me? But instead, how did Jesus respond? He directed them to what they have seen and heard. Look at verse 22 with me. Verse 22. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. The unworthy. The despised. The outcast. Now, why did Jesus respond it that way? Because, you see, Jesus was showing them what they should have been expecting. I mean, John was expecting judgment. Come on, show us some fire. But Jesus was directing their attention to this. You should have been expecting this. There is salvation that is to come with me. You see, what Jesus was doing here was he was picking up the expectations of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah who preached and proclaimed and prophesied about 700 years beforehand. In verse 22, Jesus was combining two chapters in Isaiah, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. And Jesus was highlighting to them, what you're seeing now happen in Israel is what you should have expected to happen with the coming of the Messiah. And it's worth us looking at the two passages in Isaiah. So Isaiah 35 Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. So what Jesus was highlight, highlighting to them was, you see that expectation? What does I prophesied? Don't you see that? That's taking place right now because of me. And then Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Don't you hear that? That's what I'm doing. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus was saying, you should see. It should make sense, two in two. You can see that I am indeed the Messiah. The signs are there. But what was John doing instead? You see, he wasn't focused on the good stuff, the stuff of salvation. Instead, he was picking up, he was latching on to the vengeance. That was all he saw. Where's the vengeance, Jesus? So it's picking up on those passages there about vengeance. God will come. He'll come with vengeance. And it's meant to be the day of vengeance of our Lord. You see, it's hard to blame John why he was wondering, why isn't there any judgment, Jesus? And that's because from the perspective of the Old Testament, as they were looking forward, as they heard this, and as they were looking forward towards the future, they thought that salvation and judgment were one and the same event, conflated as one event. With the coming of the Messiah, there's meant to be judgment and salvation at the same time. It's a bit like when you look through a telescope and you see a bright star and you think, well, there's only just the one star. But in reality, if you look at it on the side view, you see there's in fact two stars, one behind the other. But from the perspective of the telescope, you only see one, but in fact there's two. And so what Jesus here was showing them was now is the time of salvation. You only see the first star. It's the first coming of Jesus, but there will be the final judgment in my second coming. Two events, not one, two events separated by a distance. That time of judgment will come, John. Not yet. Now is the time of salvation. And so in the gentleness and patience, Jesus reminds John, you see, what's important, John, was well, not what you expected me to do. What's really important Is what I expect of you. What I expect of you is important. Verse 23, have a look. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. It's what I expect of you, John. Don't fall away on account of me, John. Now the word fall away is the idea of being caught in a bird trap or a snare. And so blessed is the one who doesn't get tripped up or confused by my ministry, by my teaching. And so Jesus was, in a sense, gently saying to John, stick with me, John. Don't fall away. Don't get tripped up. Because you see how easy it is to trip over the teachings of Jesus, to fall away on account of Jesus? It's very easy, isn't it? Even within the church. You just think about the claims of what Jesus claims. We heard from Ollie at the beginning John 14 verse 6, Jesus claiming, I am the way. No other ways. I am the truth. I'm the way to God. The only way to God. No other ways, no other religions. And we hear that and we think, that's offensive, Jesus. And we trip over. But Jesus doesn't mince his words. He says, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And so John was expecting things of Jesus that are true, but not yet. He may have got things wrong about Jesus. But now Jesus assesses John. And Jesus did not get John wrong. Jesus was not wrong about him. And so after the disciples left, Jesus now turns to the crowd and he asks them, Well, who do you go out into the desert to see? You didn't go to see a reed being swayed by the wind. Of course not. It's like watching grass grow. You didn't go to see that. You didn't go to the desert to see a guy dressed in nice, soft clothes. Of course not. Who do you go out to the desert to see? You went to see a prophet. And look at what Jesus said about John. Look at verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. I mean, those are profound words. I mean, I suspect that's why John sent the disciples away first, because if John heard that, he would have got a pretty big head. No one greater than me? I mean, no one greater than John? Even compared to Isaiah? Even compared to Ezekiel? Even compared to Moses? Not even greater than Moses. But why? But the reason is this. You see, out of all the Old Testament prophets... John stood as the last of them on the cusp of the coming of the kingdom of God. Out of all the prophets, they longed to see the day of the Messiah. But it was only John who who got to see the Messiah. It was only John who got to point out the Messiah. And it was John who got to baptize the Messiah. You see, his greatness was not because of his abilities or his personality, but because of his proximity and his relationship to Jesus. You see, he got to see far more clearly than all the prophets before him. And then look at what Jesus said next. He made a statement about John, but now almost contradicting what he just said, verse 28 again. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? I heard uh, quite a lot of discussions amongst our growth groups. What does that part mean? Well, you see, as great as a prophet John was, he belonged to the time of the promise. They were still looking forward to see God's grand plan of salvation. They did not see how it would take place. They belonged to the time of promise. But the least in the kingdom, those who are of no significance the prostitute, as we'll read off next week, the sinner, the child, of no worldly worth at all, but they get to see the grand plan of God's salvation plan. They get to see not just the time of promise, but the time of fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They belong to that time, and that's why they'll be greater. I like how R.C. Ryle puts it. He said, The child who knows the story of the cross possesses a key to religious knowledge which patriarchs and prophets never enjoyed, even John the Baptist. They did not see God's grand plan, but the least after the death and resurrection, they got to see it. It was still future for John, but a reality for even us today. And so what Jesus speaks of is actually... Involving us, about us, the least in the kingdom. We see how God loves us in sending his son to die on the cross, to come back to life again. We see the extent of God's love. We are the least, but we see it. And that was why Jesus came for to earth for, to bring salvation. Healings, raising the dead, preaching good news. It was all about Him being the Messiah says reminding john judgment will come don't you worry but not yet salvation first and so jesus was effectively saying to them your expectations right but the timing was wrong and now they should have been excited about that they should have been over the moon but what does jesus now think about that generation Well, what's that generation like? Because now he's just assessed John. Now he's going to make an assessment on that generation. And he paints this beautiful picture. It's a picture of what that generation was like. He picks up the picture of children playing in the marketplace. In fact, childish and stubborn children playing in the marketplace. Look at verse 32. Verse 32 they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. And so we're meant to imagine there, a bunch of children playing games, playing makeup, dress up. You know, the kids, the ringleader say, well, let's play weddings. Let's play weddings, kids. And I'll play the flute, you know, the flute. You'll be the bride, you'll be the groom, the rest of you dance. Dance like you're happy. We're at a wedding. And then you've got some kids saying, I don't want to dance. I don't want to be happy. I'm sad. I don't like this game. I don't like it at all. I just want to be sad. I'm I'm not happy at all. I don't want to. And then the ring said, well, you don't want to play weddings. Well, let's play something else then. You're sad, so let's play a funeral game. I'll play a dirge. I don't know what type of instrument. Let's let's bring out the bagpipes. We'll have a funeral procession. Now kids, let's all be sad. Let's all be sad, let's all weep and wail. And then the same group of kids, well, now I don't want to be sad. I don't want to cry, I want to be happy. In fact, I want to break dance at this funeral. And so these kids are stubborn, obstinate. They're doing the complete opposite of what the music was. And so do you see what Jesus was saying about that generation? It's a beautiful illustration. You are an obstinate, stubborn people who just won't play games. John the Baptist came playing a dirge. It was sad. It was about judgment. Look at verse 33. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. They're not joining in with John. In fact, they're accusing John. But then Jesus comes along and he's playing a flute. Verse 34 The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They should be happy with him. The bridegroom has arrived. But he said, I'm not happy. I don't want to join. In fact, how can he eat so much and drink so much? He's a glutton. I do not want to dance to the beat of Jesus or sing to the tune of John why what was Jesus saying about that generation why did they not want to join in well it shows something about the human heart I want to do it my way I want to make my own music I expect things to be done my way I want you to follow my lead I play you dance I I make the music you sing I lead you follow me I want to be boss I don't want to dance to the music of Jesus. But then in the end, our final verse, verse 35, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. It'll be seen as right if you go with Jesus, if you're in sync with Jesus, if you dance to his music, if you don't fall away on account of me, Jesus says, if you dance to my music and move to my beat and sing to my tune you'll be shown to be wise because you'll have salvation. And so that was that generation. John was expecting judgment. Jesus says, not yet. Salvation first. But it was a generation that was unresponsive. Now I want you to think about us now, our generation. 2023. Do you think it's got, gotten better or worse? What do you reckon? Is our generation today... More holy or less holy? More wicked or less wicked? Or even think about how Australia has changed over even just the last decade. Or the last few decades. If you remember growing up here, how much has it changed? What is this generation like? In the book, The Fountain of Public Prosperity, a book I've been reading, is really thick and I'm still making my way through it, by Stuart Piggins. He looked at the influence of evangelical Christians in Australian history, and he said, At the birth of the Australian nation in 1901, overwhelmingly, most thought of Australia as a Christian nation. But more fundamentally than that, not most, but perhaps all Australians, were Christianised in terms of values by the socialisation generated by the churches. Is our Australia now same or different to that? 1901. Has the generation changed? I mean, Christian values, which was once the bedrock of Western civilization, the good of society, honesty, integrity, understanding the family unit as the building blocks of society, the Ten Commandments, Now today, what's happened? Well, what should be the bedrock, but now it's pushed towards the periphery. Marginalised, in fact, what was once so good, now even called evil. And if the Church of England or the Grammys is anything to go by, we see the reverse today. What is wicked, depraved, is called good by society. And so, what is our generation like? Are we in sync with Jesus? Are we dancing to the music of Jesus? Or are we crossing our arms saying, No, I'm not playing that game. I want to be sad. Or I want to be happy. I just don't want to do what you're telling me to do. Are we singing his tunes? Are we moving to his beat? Are we following his lead? Because if we open our eyes, we can see our generation does not want to do that at all. Our generation wants to make our own music. John the Baptist, there's perhaps a little bit of him in us. And so we again come to Jesus, Lord, you're the ruler. What are you going to do about our world? The mess we see, not just outside the church, but inside the church. When is judgment coming? When are you going to take the swing with the axe? Is Jesus meeting your expectations of the Lord of the universe? And don't you sometimes question, what are you doing about this mess? But but you see what this passage teaches us. It turns things upside down. It turns things the right way around. You see, what should be important is not what we expect of Jesus, but what he expects of us. He sets the agenda, not us. He plays the music. He sets the tune. He beats the drum and we dance along. He sets the agenda. And so what is it that Jesus is really doing? What is his music that we should be listening to and dancing to? It's the music of salvation. The dance with open arms to invite the world, repent and find salvation. It's the music of don't fall away on account of me and you'll be saved. It's the music of believe in me and you'll find forgiveness for your sins. You'll find liberty. You'll find a joy and hope that you have never known. Don't worry about judgment. That will come. It will come. But not yet. And why is that? How do we know that judgment will come, but not yet? Because, you see, in the gospel story, if we continue to read along, we will find that the axe has already fallen. The axe from heaven has already fallen, and it fell on Jesus himself, the Son of God, when he was crucified on the cross. The judgment of God fell on God the Son, so that we might be spared that judgment now and forever. And so today, the music today is the music of salvation. And Jesus is still playing that music. But will we dance along? Will we invite others to come with us and to dance along, to find life and hope and joy in him? Or will we complain, Jesus, you're just too kind You need to do more, more judgment, more fire now. But when we think that way, we think as though Jesus is not distressed by the evils he sees. Of course he's distressed by all the wickedness and depravity he sees in this world. And it's not as though Jesus is indifferent to the wickedness perverted in this world. And it's not as though it does not pain Jesus to be ridiculed and rejected and scorned and despised. By the very people he came into this world to save. Of course he knows that. He feels it far more intensely than us. Far more. It will come, but not yet. You see, if it was up to us, I suspect that John the Baptist in us will come out full force and we would have torched the world already. I really love this quote from Samuel Bolton, English minister from the 17th century. He said, If but any tender hearted man should sit one hour in the throne of the Almighty and look down upon the earth as God does continually and see what abominations are done in that hour, he would undoubtedly in the next set all the world on fire. If we got to see from God's perspective, we'll set the world on fire. Not just this suburb, that suburb, that city, the world. But God has not done so yet. Why? Because the music still of Jesus is the music of salvation. The Lord is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so let me ask you what is the dance you're dancing to? Is it to the music of Jesus? To the drumbeat that he's beating? to the tune he's playing, or is it something else? You see, it affects how we relate to our world because you know that John the Baptist, we need to quash that. No, we can't look at the world and have our arms crossed and think, oh, that is wretched. That is so evil. Damned be you. Fire from heaven. No, not at all. Instead, our posture to the world, if we're in tune with the music is, we need to call the world to dance with us dance with us repent the church of england you have done wrong repent that singer at the grammys that is not right repent dance with us and find salvation in jesus christ and when we do we are in fact beating along with the heartbeat of god let's pray Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that even today is the day of salvation. And so help us, Lord, to dance rightly in tune with Jesus, in sync with him. As he plays the music, we dance with him. As he plays the tune, we sing with him. We pray, Lord, that we'll be people used by you to call the world to repentance and even ourselves. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.